morning again. Welcome again. First Sunday in Lent. Welcome again, everyone online following us. Uh, it, as I said, it came to us a little earlier this year, but this year we're going to do a series. Uh, these next five weeks, it's called The Wandering Heart, and it's named after Peter, uh, the disciple who, as I told the kids, started out as Simon. So it gets always confusing because there is another disciple named Simon, that Simon, son of Jonah, to get everyone lots of confused when they do multiple names. But uh, so this is him. This is the disciple who would later be called Peter. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through his uh, experience of Jesus, uh, walk through how he sees Jesus and encounters things. I was kind of drawn to this idea when I first saw it because, you know, Peter, I always think, gets, gets a little bit of a bum rap. And so uh, maybe there's something to be learned here. You got to remember, Peter is the one Jesus picked to be his successor. So I think there's some good stuff to look at. We got a different verse each week. And even on Wednesdays as well, we're going to look at different parts of the lives of Peter. Today's piece of art that comes with it is called River of Grace by the Reverend Lyle Gwynne Garrity. It's obviously after Peter catches the big fish uh, and Jesus told him to check in a different spot. We'll get to that story a little bit in a minute. But again, I was attracted to this, the whole idea of looking at it through Peter uh, because he's always been one of the more interesting disciples. Uh, he's always the guy that's blurting out the answer right from the gut when everybody else is sitting there and refusing to answer. And sometimes I think Peter says what everyone else is thinking. And sometimes I think Peter's the only one who really is thinking, and the others are just kind of being a little bit passive. Peter acts on impulse. Uh, and so he's the one that, you know, will jump out onto the water to go following Jesus without first asking, you know, is this possible according to the laws of physics? He just jumps out and does it. The others, they stay in the boat. Peter is full of love of the Lord. He's a guy with a big heart, a lot of passion. He follows that passion. And the other thing about Peter is I feel like I need to redeem him a little bit. A lot of Christian tradition has kind of made Peter out to be this sort of kind of the bumbling brute who doesn't really know what he's doing and kind of fumbles through life. And I always hate that caricature. You know, yes, he was a fisherman. He had a blue-collar job. But you know, he was anything but dumb. In fact, again, if you read it, yes, he makes a lot of mistakes, but he also figures things out first before the others do. He's willing to do that trial and error stuff that the others are kind of nervous about. And again, he was chosen to be Jesus's successor, uh, not the other guys who spent more time thinking about it, which tells me something about Jesus's thinking as well. That Jesus wasn't necessarily looking for the leader who was going to measure twice and cut once. For carpentry, that's exactly what you want, right? You want that in a lot of jobs. But when it comes to exploring matters of faith, that isn't always the best way to do it. With a lot of our experiences in life, I think we miss out if we insist on over-processing them or so thoroughly thinking it through that we've made sure we know exactly what we're doing first. And I think some of that comes from Peter being a fisherman. That is kind of his job. Now, I am not the world's most expert fisherman. Uh, I have done it. 
And uh, I've done it just enough to know that it really is a trial and error kind of game. Unless you're the guy that gets that little sonar thingy. I don't know if you've seen those, but you can get a sonar that will, uh, th that will beep, and it will not only show you on the screen if there's fish, it will sh tell you how many and how big they are. To me, that's cheating. <laughs> I mean, if you just knew where all the fish were, that's, there's no sport in that. It's why when they have these, you know, Cabela's contests and stuff, you don't get to use your sonar due to Mahickey. Uh, but Peter, of course, had no access to that kind of technology. He knew the lake. He probably had fished it, God knows, hundreds of times. His family had probably fished that lake. He, he developed a good kind of working knowledge of where it was. But if you know fishing, you know that as much as you may get a good knowledge of where the fish are and a good knowledge of where they tend to be, that does not guarantee that that is where they are. It isn't, they aren't that perfectly consistent. There's always a little bit of a hit and miss on this. And Peter had to live his life by this. He had no, there was no uh, backup plan. If he didn't catch fish, he didn't get money, he didn't put food on the table. So if he didn't catch fish that day, he and the kids went hungry, and so he had to get his butt back out there and keep working and working until he got something. And so he would have lived a life that would have been a lot of hit and miss. And so I think it's that sort of approach to things that I'll give it one more try kind of attitude that I think allowed Peter to get a little bit better sense of Jesus as the Messiah through trial and error. Yeah, he wasn't educated like the Pharisees and didn't have this deep knowledge of Scripture. But he had a good sense of who Jesus was. And he had a good sense that he was in the presence of God and of something big. So I want to kind of redeem Peter a little bit this Lent. And um, highlight the ways in which I think Peter can be kind of a good role model for us and a good way to look at faith. Uh, so, the guy who is full of heart who wanders around and learns, the wandering heart. That's our theme. And you know, when, I thought of it, when I thought of that, it kind of reminded me of learning a new language. I, you know, and I don't know how many of you have tried learning a new language, and not just academically learning a new language, but actually going to another country or a place where they speak this other language. You can kind of see that there's different ways to learn, right? If you just learn how to read it, that's the easiest way. Right? Because when you're reading it, you can kind of stop, you can pause, you can look back. And then the next easiest part is listening to it. And that's a bit harder because you don't get to, you have to ask someone to repeat it if you don't catch it. And native speakers talk really fast. And you don't realize that until you're, trying, you're new at the language and you try listening to native speakers. I had this thing when I was in Sweden in the summer. I remembered just enough that when I could speak, they would think, oh, he's a Swede and knows what he's doing. And then they fire it back at me. And then I have to be like, uh, could you use English? Sorry, I didn't get it. And, but I, and I ran into, we went to, went to the old church I was at. We ran into this woman. She had moved to Sweden from the Philippines a couple years ago. She still hadn't learned the language. Because they speak English, and everyone there in Europe speaks English, uh, she just hadn't learned it. Well, part of it is learning it is kind of embarrassing. 
You know, if you go from an adult and you're the expert, you're fluent at it, and now suddenly you get in a new country and your kids know it better than you, and now you're fumbling around, you're trying, you're getting words wrong, you're embarrassing yourself all the time, it's a very humbling thing to be putting yourself out there and trying to learn a new language. And sometimes you do say stupid stuff. The classic example, I, I remember, this was even going back to when I was a kid there, they, they would talk about how Americans would come and they would invite the Americans over for dinner so that at the end of the dinner they would say, Yoi fool. Well, fool is a word in Swedish. That is a legitimate word. It doesn't mean I've had enough to eat. It means I'm drunk. <laughs> and so people would eat their dinner, they get done with dinner, oh, thank you so much, I am drunk. <laughs> and they would laugh. Because the real word for having eaten enough is met. Uh, and, you know, everybody makes mistakes like that. Well, is it somebody, they, they saw their um, teacher uh, out, it was an American student, saw his teacher out on the street and said, came up and I said, and, and said the next day, oh, I saw you out walking the street. Well, walking on the street, it's a little bit like in the U.S., walking on the street isn't walking the street. Walking the street has a different connotation. You're selling something. And there was much embarrassment and um, scolding. But that's what happens when you, when you learn by trial and error, right? You make mistakes, you make a fool of yourself, and there's always somebody sitting there going, ha-ha. It's the way it is. But part of why I love Peter, because he's willing to go about this learning a disciple thing that way. He's willing to jump in. He's willing to one to fumble it and not have to sit there and feel like he has to understand it perfectly before he acts. And so, because somewhere along the line, and I don't know where this came from, but somewhere along the line, we kind of got to talking about faith like it was sort of a ladder ascending into heaven. Maybe that's because there's writers who write this way. You know, the mystical journey up and into heaven, you know, and so I will ascend the ladder. I'll contemplate and contemplate and contemplate. But there's so few of us where our faith life is, is, a, is a straight stairway to heaven. Most of us, it's like, you know, things will be great, and then there'll be a setback, and we'll go back, and then it'll be great, and then there's some tragedy, and then it feels like God isn't even there, and then it feels like you completely set back, but then you realize God really was there, and so it's more like, woo, woo, like this, right? That's how the real world works. That's how life works. And if you've got a heart for Jesus, you'll know that Jesus is as much there for you in the setbacks as he is in the times when everything feels like it's going up, up, up. So, and take the take this story of the boat and the fish and what this painting's about. The scene, uh, as we know in the story, is Jesus teaching by the lake. It says a crowd came to him, there were so many, he had to go out onto the lake to teach. And he stood in a boat, and he just commandeers a boat, doesn't seem to ask whose it is. Maybe he knew it was Peter's, I don't know. But it doesn't say that. He says he just saw a boat and he jumped into it. And it says the, the fishermen who had it were cleaning their nets, getting all the seaweed and gunk out of them. And then the scene sort of shifts to Simon, Peter, whose boat he took, and he says to him, go out and try again and put your nets in the deep water. And Peter says, 
man, we've been doing this. I, I was out there all night. All night we were trying this. It didn't work. But if you say so, Jesus, and I never know if Peter's being a little sarcastic in that. Is it a reverent, oh, if you say so, Master, I will do it. Or if it's a, <laughs> if you say so, I'll do it. You know, kind of like the way you're a teenager when it's like, you know, it really would be good for you to, to, to you know, get that project done. If you say so. But at least Peter does it. James and John don't even do anything. So then, of course, he goes out, and as we know, he catches so much, he catches so much that it fills the boats. And, uh, you know, and so, and it's interesting, too, uh, because I think of Peter, you know, being out there all night long. All night long, he says, they were fishing, uh, which most fishermen wouldn't have done. But, you know, if I'm out there all night long and I'm getting to the first hour and the second hour and the third hour and the fourth hour and the fifth hour and the sixth hour and I'm fishing the same shallow end, at some point do you just stop and say, you know, maybe I'll try the other side. Why do you just keep fishing the part that isn't working over and over and over without even trying the other way? Did it never occur to them that, you know, maybe just maybe they might be in the middle and that's why it's not working. Maybe. You know, there's that old saying in logic, if, if, the, if the possible things are impossible, then maybe, it, maybe you should consider what you thought was impossible, that maybe you've just deduced that it could be. But then again, it does say he was pulling an all-nighter, right? And I don't know if you've ever done an all-nighter. I've only done a handful in my life. It was either with an airline flight or back in college. And I, I would do it, uh, I would do it, you know, you go out, you know, I, um, I, I would get all ready, I'd get all my books out, and then I'd get this huge collection of Diet Mountain Dew. I cringe to even say that I did it. It's amazing I still have a liver. Um, and it would hype me up, keep me up all night long. And so I would show up to the test that next morning technically prepared. But what I always found is I was never as sharp. I could recite things, but I was never quite as sharp. And, and I found that at a certain point, you just stay awake, but you're not processing very well. I think they've actually shown that if you drive after an all-nighter, you're almost as bad as if you were drunk, that you get that cognitively impaired doing it. I wonder if that's what Peter and James and John had done. They'd been doing it so long that they didn't stop and actually think. They just kept going more and more, and their ability to, to think about it wasn't that great. And it took Jesus coming along and saying, all right, hold on, stop, listen, and let's give this one more try. Stop, listen, give it one more try. And who listens? Not James and John, but Peter. And he comes back with full nets. And then it says Peter freaks out and he gets on his knees because Peter realizes he's in the presence of God and that this abundant catch is not just an accident and that his choice to act boldly paid off. I think it's human nature as we get older to sort of decide that the things that we're doing that we're, are, kind of, are kind of been there, done that, you know, I tried it, it didn't work, I'm not gonna try it again. It won't work. I heard a pastor once tell me 
You know, you can't really, all that evangelism and growth stuff, it doesn't really work anymore. We tried that back in the 70s. I remember we tried needs-based evangelism back in the 70s. It didn't work. It won't work. And I'm like, yeah, you know, because, you know, the culture hasn't changed at all since the 1970s. You know? Meanwhile, they're over there in atheist, communist China, and the churches are growing. I hear, people get, I hear people give up all the time. They give up on their communities. It can't be fixed. They give up on the kids these days. The kids are a lost cause. You can't save them. They're all going to hell, which is so kind of funny because if you actually run the numbers, kids, kids these days get in way less trouble than they did in the 1970s by a lot. That's what the data shows. But I hear giving up everywhere. Maybe it's kind of a cultural thing to give up, right? Anytime something starts requiring effort or giving it another shot, we just say, eh, it doesn't work, cut and run, waste of time. Accepting kids' sports, that's the one place where I think we always do it, right? You know, after you've done a couple traveling seasons and your kid says, you know, I, I don't really want to do that anymore, you know, and you're like, I spent $4,000 every year to get those things. I gave up 10 weekends. I bought you the special shoes signed by Lionel Messi himself. You are going to get your butt back on that field because winners never quit and quitters never win. And then we give the long diatribe about how my poppy would have given me a whooping and kids use days are gotten soft and you don't appreciate good work, blah, 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 blah. But you ask yourself, wow, if we understand that with athletics, that it's going to get hard and we have to push through, why is it so hard to think in the other things? Why is it so, do we cut and run too quick with our relationships? Eh, it's getting tough, I'm going to go. I sort of feel like in the West, it's like anything that involves deep fishing, we kind of go, eh. Do we put the same diligence? into loving our neighbors or loving our enemies? Do we put the same diligence into knowing God? When the spiritual life is hard and God feels distant and prayer doesn't seem like it's working, do we stop and listen and give it another try? Many things in life are trial and error. Following Jesus can sometimes be one of them. Peter's a good example here. He stops he listens to Jesus, and he gives it another try. He acknowledges that he might be wrong, and he goes out there, maybe just to prove Jesus wrong, I don't know. But I think he's a great example of a faith that says, I might not be doing this forever, but I'll listen to God and see. I'll listen to God and see. So, as you go through Lent, and we walk together with Peter and with Jesus, Try to keep your eyes on the ways that Peter makes a great discovery or when others are too busy in their analysis paralysis to do anything. Keep your eyes open for how Peter gets more learning done by jumping in while the others are sitting by the side questioning Jesus or trying to analyze him first. Because Peter is the man who is full of heart who wandered into faith for the, and, and became eventually Jesus' successor in the gospel. Amen.